Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up in a punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a goddamn legend from the band Bikini Kill, from the Casual Dots, from the Julie Ruin, from Frumpies, from Panks, from Pigeons and, and Star Sign Scorpio, the great... Kathy Wilcox is on the show today, and this is a fantastic conversation with someone I've always wanted to meet. I always wanted to talk to her, but now it's finally happened, and uh, you get to hear it. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do for the show. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at left for Damien, Twitter for the time being. Uh, there's also a TikTok page, a Facebook page, an Instagram page, probably something else, all under the banner at Turned Out a Punk. You can find uh, videos and and postings about the show and announcements and all that fun stuff on all those different platforms. Uh, but if you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about all the fun that happens on this podcast, each and every episode. I play in a band. We are called fucked up. You can find out more information about us over at fuckedup.cc. Got some tours coming up in the fall, some new records, some reissues of some records. We just announced a Toronto show coming up. As well, we're, where we're going to be playing Chemistry of Common Life, start to finish. God, that record's old now. I'm old now. Oh, boy. Reality just set in. Anyway, on to today's show. As I said off the top, today on the show, the legend from the band The Frumpies and The Julie Ruin and The Casual Dots and et cetera, et cetera. And of course, of course, arguably one of the most important punk bands to ever come out of this genre, Bikini Kill. Kathy Wilcox is on the show. Uh, as I said before, you know, I wanted to talk to Kathy for a very long time. I am a huge fan of Bikini Kill, huge fan of all her, all her bands. She is someone who has played in a lot of bands that are fantastic and amazing. The Casual Dots have put out a great record, Sanguine Truth. And uh, you can pick that up wherever you get your records. Xor Sticks is the name of the label that put it out. And, uh, of course, Bikini Kill just wrapped up a massive reunion tour, which has been going on for the last few years, pre-COVID, post-COVID, finally wrapped up. I don't know if there's plans or, or talk of them doing more stuff, because that's not what we're concerned about on our show. We're not concerned about the future. We're concerned about the past over here on Turn It a Punk, and boy, do we ever dive into the past on this episode. Uh, as I say, I don't know what Bikini Kill has planned 
Uh, hopefully you can find out more information about Casual Dots upcoming tours and whatnot over on Kathy Wilcox's Instagram page, which uh, will be linked in the show description if you are so inclined to follow. And uh, yeah, as I say, Kathy's a legend and it's an honor to have her on the show. I'm not going to ramble on anymore because you probably want to hear this interview. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the legend Kathy Wilcox on Turned Out a punk. Kathy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, this is a, a huge deal. As we we're talking off there, I've had Toby on the show a couple times now, and, and you probably heard on that because you said you heard those episodes, but I think there's very few bands as significant to this music genre as Bikini Kill and your work in this band and all the other bands you did as well. So to talk to someone that helps shape this thing like the way you have, it's a big thrill. So thank you again for being here. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. But I got to start them off the way they all start off, which is, Kathy, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across it? Um, this is funny. I've been thinking about this for a while, and I actually, um, I actually can't really remember the first time. And it, I mean, it could actually be like Quincy. This is super embarrassing. <laughs> It could actually be the Quincy Punk episode. Um, yeah, I grew up in a place where it was like there weren't really any punks around. You know, everybody was listening to like heavy metal and stuff. So um, if it wasn't Quincy, I guess it would be maybe, you know, there was a building by my house that someone spray painted Flipper on. And I didn't really understand what that was. And then someone explained to me that it was punk band. So, I mean sort of tangentially maybe that was the last time first time I heard about punk but I didn't know what it was I never sought it out or anything like that but um I guess I guess um I had an older brother who kind of tried to turn me into a punk I guess <laughs> when I was thinking back to it he he was really into punk and he would give me like maximum rock and rolls and like cassette tapes that he'd made of like the butthole surfers and stuff like that so I guess that was probably the early 80s and so, yeah, that's kind of when I first started to listen. It didn't sound like anything to me. It sounded just like, you know, it just sounded like noise. So I didn't, it wasn't like I immediately was like, this is, this is really speaking to me or anything. I was just like, you know, he seems to think that I should know what this is. So I'm going to listen to it for a while and see if it like turns into anything and starts to sound like music. <laughs> I can't say that the bubble surfers ever really did. I, I grew to appreciate them, but they never really sounded like music per se, but, um, I think they'd be flattered yeah. by that. <laughs> I mean, I really like that band, especially yeah. that but like, you know, if you're like 13 or 14 and you're listening to it and all you've listened to up till then is like, I don't know, like Blondie and Devo. I mean, it's like you say Blondie and Devo and then people are like, Oh, you were listening to punk, but you know, that was top 40 in 1980. So it wasn't, I didn't consider that to be like countercultural or anything. That was just pop music. Well, it's interesting because like with Flipper and Butthole Surfers, there's like these bands that were like a complete break from rock and roll and pop tradition up until that point. Like those two bands, there's obviously other bands and, and more would come, but yeah, Butthole Surfers doesn't sound like the Mamas and the Papas or <laughs> <laughs> Rolling Stones or anything. Yeah, it's not like traditional song structures. You, yeah. you know, you play Vivo, you know what's happening. You play Blondie, that's obviously pop music, but um yeah, that was a challenge. And it was also funny because he didn't, you know, it was back then someone would just give you a cassette with no information, you know, and it just said bubble surfers. And he's like, you should listen to this. He was like that kind of brother. And I was like, um, 
And it was my stepbrother. So we didn't live together. It wasn't like I could just go knock on his door and be like, oh, what is this weird re- uh, tape that you just gave me? So I would only see him like every few weeks and he'd just give me a pile of stuff and be like, here, you need to read this or whatever. Um, I think he was trying to save me from becoming like a new waiver because he, he knew I was like into the Smiths and stuff. And he was just like, you need, <laughs> you need help. <laughs> I mean, I still love the Smiths. I don't, I think that that's maybe unjustified that he thought I needed help, but um, he was definitely trying to kind of corrupt me. Like he took me to punk shows and stuff like that, but yeah. So I just had this cassette that said butthole surfers and I would listen to it and be like, I actually thought it was surf music. I was like, this doesn't sound like surf music. <laughs> it sounds nothing like surf music. Like I just don't, I didn't understand it. I didn't have any kind of frame of reference to understand it at all. But, but I, I kept listening to it, you know, trying to figure out what it was. You bring up a good point there. Like at the time, these things like things like the Smiths, Devo and Blondie, they're all like light years apart in terms of like youth culture. Now I think they're taking up very much in the same thing. Like people say butthole surfers and the Smiths in the same breath. Like there's right. anything, you know, others coming from punk roots, but at, you know, like I think the gulf between these worlds has gotten so much smaller. Oh, absolutely. Everything's completely flattened. Like any kind of nuance or distinction that existed back then, you know, it's just all a Spotify playlist at this point. It's all kind of crushed together, but yeah, at the time, I mean, that was, that was worlds apart worlds apart you know you could safely listen to rem and the smiths for years and never know anything about this whole other thing going on and that was the other thing i mean there was no way to get information i'm sure this has come up probably a million times on the show but it's like there wasn't any way to find anything out so if you didn't have friends who knew something or you didn't have a brother who was trying to corrupt you then you didn't find out about this stuff you know i grew up in a really small town um vancouver washington which is not that small now but at the time it was super small and I didn't have a car until I was 16. So it's like, you just, you kind of got what you got, you know? So it was like, whatever was at the record store at the mall. And they didn't have the bottle servers at the record store at the mall. They didn't have- Not for a few yeah, years. They, they barely had like the Ramones and stuff. I don't remember ever seeing the Ramones or any of that kind of stuff at the record store. So until I started taking, I started taking the bus into Portland with my friends. So once I got to be like, like in high school or whatever, slightly more of a new waiver, then we would take the bus. But, you know, to take the bus into Portland from Vancouver, it takes like an hour. You have to do like three transfers. It's like kind of a big deal. It's like you take the whole day to do it. But, yeah, then we'd go to record stores and check stuff out. But even then, you know, you would just kind of flip through the records and be like, I think I read about this in one of the magazines, but I don't really know. Or you'd ask the, rec- the guy at the record store and be like, is this good? Should I buy this or something? So it's like something like now where it's like you can just look everything up and be like, oh, this is this is connected to that. And, you know. Well, I guess like along the same sort of themes, like, you know, you said maybe Quincy was your first exposure to punk and because, punk- no, <laughs> no, but I mean, but I mean, even like, like chips, Quincy, like, you know, even talk shows during the time punk was like, was vilified. People were very yeah, yeah. scared of it. Were you kind of freaked out when your brother started getting into this? Was, had that kind of like permeated your psyche? Well, so he wasn't, I didn't connect it to the Quincy punk thing. I didn't think that I didn't, connect the bubble servers to that at all. Those seemed like two separate things. Um, he didn't look like a punk. He wasn't like, you know, wearing a leather jacket or he didn't have patches or he wasn't, he just looked like a totally normal, mild mannered person. He just happened to be in punk. You know, those people that like, they read really normal. Um, but yeah, I don't, I wasn't that weirded out. Cause he just was like, you know, he watched movies and read books and was it, smart person and he was just like this is something you should probably know about so i was like okay I'll take your word for it turned out he was right <laughs> <laughs> ultimately 
ultimately. So, like, if he's was he live in the same town? Like, were there other kids getting into punk? In in, so he lived in Portland, and I lived in Vancouver, oh. which you know, in the eighties, that was um, worlds apart, yeah. worlds apart culturally. <laughs> there were no punks in my school, zero. There was one kid. I'm talking about like junior high school, you know, mm. which is when this all happened. But there was one kid who shaved his hair and immediately immediately got his ass kicked, like relentlessly. That was as punk as it got at my junior high. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it just kind of wafted through and then that was it. And in high school, I feel like there was maybe one or two people that kind of outwardly looked like punks, but mostly it was like Smith's New Waivers. You know what I mean? Like me. It was just, it wasn't super hardcore. When you were going to Portland and some of these early punk shows that you're kind of getting dragged to, do you remember any of the bands? Did any of them stick out to you? Um, yeah, I saw Husker Du and oh. Soul Asylum. Um, what else? Uh, I saw an early R.E.M. show that's not very punk, I guess. But um, It's in my book. I'm one of those people that puts it all under the tent. I mean, I just like those bands more. I was like, this sounds like music. You know, I kind of grew up like taking music lessons and my mom would take us to the symphony. Like we were kind of like that kind of household, I guess, or something. So to me, that just sounded more like music. And then I listened to this other stuff and I was like, how is this better? <laughs> how is this better than Blondie or R.E.M.? I don't hear it. I think it wasn't, I really think it wasn't until definitely late high school, maybe even college that I started. It was also old, you know, it's kind of like hardcore was kind of old music at that point in the late eighties. It wasn't, you know, I feel like minor threat and everything that had, that had happened long before it wasn't super current. Um, but yeah, then when I was in college, before I met Toby, you know, the radio station at Evergreen's really good. So they were, they would play a lot of stuff and I would hit stuff on there, but really this is so not feminist, but um, I had a boyfriend in college with a really good record collection. And that's probably where I got exposed to most of the like good punk music that I ended up really liking. Well, that's what you needed, right? You needed someone with a good record collection, however you met yeah, them, because exactly. you, like you said, there's no, nothing that gives you this information like you have to grab and find and search and right stick together every it's about single scrap. it was about access exactly yeah did you ever see um the wipers when you were going down to portland for shows or anything i didn't no were they like on the radar because to me they're like one of those great bands that just seems they were absolutely on the radar they were absolutely on the radar but not on my radar mm -hmm. you know what i mean like i totally could have gone to those shows but i didn't know that they were happening Vancouver and Portland, they're not like, nobody was flyering in Vancouver. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't think of really an equivalent. I can't think of a way to explain it other than it's like, I lived in the sticks. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. I think, I think especially as like a Canadian, um, it wasn't till I started driving through this region that you realize like, it's not all Seattle and, and Portland and, uh, even even Olympia, like there's a lot of smaller towns in those places, and it's a it's a lift it's a it's very eye opening stopping for gas in places that aren't these these cities. But even back then, it was even more so. I mean, even like Portland wasn't even Portland. Seattle wasn't. It was like nothing was anything. Like nobody wanted to live in Portland or Seattle. That's the thing that's also funny. Is like, you know, nobody was trying to get there. I was trying to get there because I lived in Vancouver, but you know. They weren't really destinations. They weren't like cultural destinations. Definitely shows happened there more than it in Vancouver, but it still was pretty, pretty few and far between. I feel like the scene. 
There's also this weird Seattle scene that I've only kind of found out about recently that is very much sort of post-punk uh, in time period, but it's very like new wavy, very songwriting bands like uh, I think Strider's one of them. Chris Freeman from Pansy Division used to be in a band in, in the mid '80s that was kind of doing this sort of stuff, like much closer to the Smiths than than to Poison Idea or anything like that. Um, were you aware of any sort of like local bands when you were going up and you know, especially in Olympia when you got up to Olympia? Oh yeah, definitely Olympia. Yeah, I mean, you know, we know about all the local bands. That was one of the reasons why I went to Evergreen is because of K Records and Beat Happening. That was one of the records that my brother had given me in high school was the first Beat Happening record. That actually, that was kind of a breakthrough because I listened to that and that was, it was kind of like the Butthole Surfers where I didn't have any frame of reference to really understand what it was. I was listening to it thinking, you know, is this children's music? Like, what even is this? What are they going for here? And then the, the record cover was so just like a child's drawing scrawl of a cat. So that record super fascinated me. I just listened to it over. It's not, I mean, it's not like it sounded great to me. It wasn't like I immediately identified with it. I just was super fascinated because I didn't understand really what it was or who these people were. It's like you flip over the back and there's all these pictures. And then like, I think maybe a PO box or something in Olympia. It's just very little information, but really fascinating. So I just used to stare at those pictures and be like, who are these people? What's going on? How did they put this record out? And that was the other thing is that was probably the first time that I thought just a normal person could put a record out, you know, of just whatever. It doesn't have to sound particularly good or anything. You just put some artwork together, print it and sell it. I had never actually seen that before. So, yeah. So Beat Happening, I definitely knew about when I moved to Olympia. I think that's one of the most liberating things about punk when you when you find a band that has the sound. And obviously, once you do it, you realize it's a lot harder than it first blush but but just says to you like I've got permission to do this I can I can do this yeah and also the fact that it kind of I mean it's not that it sounded bad that record but it kind of if you're used to listening to other stuff it does sound bad it sounds like you know they didn't really try or something but there's something really liberating about that you're like oh they you know they were willing to put this out and this was valuable to them so it's like you know I don't know. Yeah, it kind of gives you like inspiration or courage to do something like that yourself, I think. You mentioned taking music lessons. Had you tried and to put together any sort of bands or, or make your own music prior to moving? No, on? no. I just did like piano recitals and violin and stuff like that. It's kind of, I guess, also if you're, you know, seeing classical music, even if you're seeing like big rock bands on a big rock stage, it's 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 not presented to you. Like punk's so unique in the way it's presented to you as like anyone can do this and you you have to try it and you should try it. Like, I can't think of too many other things that encourage that kind of level of participation from fans. Well, exactly. And like, so the, the, probably the rock concerts that I was seeing before that were more like, you know, definitely in junior high, I went through the like Scorpions, Ozzy Osbourne, Judas Priest phase, you know, when you're like 12 and you go see those shows and there's no entry point for a regular human being. You know, that's just, it's, total spectacle. It's total full on. It doesn't seem like a regular person could ever do that, you know? So yeah, that was definitely the appeal of the Olympia bands was sort of like, here's your entry point, you know, just start doing it. And it might sound like this, but that's fine. You know, what was the first show you remember going to in Olympia, like DIY type shows or, or more of like part of the punk scene type shows? I don't remember. 
I couldn't tell you. There were, you know, when I lived, um, when I was going to college, I lived on campus for the first two years. And there were tons of shows there, like, you know, Nirvana played there and three people. I think maybe the Go Team played there. I don't remember seeing the Go Team, but um, Danger Mouse. There were just all these local bands that played in the dorms and then in this housing called the Mods, which were just basically like little duplex houses. So I lived there the first year and it was like Mud Honey played there and Nirvana. It's just, ton you know, tons of bands were playing there, but it wasn't even necessarily like, oh, this one particular band is playing. It was more like, there's a show at K dorm. We're all going to go. And then you would go. And then like three bands would play. Like sonically, all these bands are, are like very disparate, you know? And I think ultimately they kind of get slotted into certainly in music history into like separate genres, but you know, like these bands would play together. Like, you know, would like bands like brotherhood or any of those kind of like more straight edge kind of bands, like they, would they mix up? Toby said that they would kind of be around too. It just feels like there was like a, it's like a, a real, broad scene in terms of like sonics like was there divisions within it at the time or is it just all music if there was i wasn't aware of it like i i don't really pay attention to that kind of stuff like what the divisions are between the different kinds of genres to me it was just like oh that's a guy in my music theory class and he's playing guitar in this band so i'm gonna go and yeah. then there's these other bands that are playing you know it wasn't like oh they're straight edge or they're not i don't remember there being any straight edge bands but i wasn't really tuned into that scene you know I what i mean that's the thing about that time period there's just so much music happening like it, it really is like a like a real watershed moment like something like in the 1960s post rolling stones with all the american garage bands but just localized to like one kind of area you think so? wow it didn't feel like that <laughs> i don't know like i could i could just sit here right now and just rhyme off bands and like bands and and you know k records and sub pop and whatever the uh the stuff that would lead into Sunny Day Real Estate and kind of like that whole world of stuff. Like it's all so you're talking like nineties though. You're talking like mid nineties on maybe. Yeah. But I think the stuff that starts in the eighties, right? Like all the stuff that starts around, like, I don't know, you were like no better than I would, but I'd say like 88, 87, you start seeing all these young bands and there've been some before, obviously prior to that, but like all these records start coming out and it just goes right into the nineties. I'm, I'm saying this as someone who's, dedicated my life to the nerdy pursuit of finding these records <laughs> well um you obviously know a lot more about it than me i wasn't really that tuned into it to be perfectly honest i mean i was at evergreen from 87 to 91 but i only lived on campus from 87 to 89 87 to 88 really mm. um and then after that i lived off campus and i was friends with people in bands but i wasn't i definitely wasn't going to like every single show that was happening that's Toby was like that, you know, she was going to every single show that was happening. I was doing other stuff. I was definitely going to shows, but not, um, not all the time. And then we moved away in 91, you know, spring of 91. So it's kind of like anything after that. Uh, I'm not that familiar with, to be perfectly honest, but we moved back and we lived there for a little while. So I know some of the kind of later mid later nineties bands, but, um, yeah, like the whole sunny day real estate thing that is completely, I don't know anything about any of that stuff. It's also weird because there's, there's a, that huge Christian tooth and nail scene that also kind of pops off in Seattle as well around this time too. Like it feels like, I don't know, it must have been something in the water in terms of like oh, kids and punk rock. Like Chicago, I guess also in the 90s has a huge scene with lots of bands coming out of it. But I don't know for like, as you're saying for, you know, a place where Seattle wasn't like it is now and Portland wasn't like it is now for all these bands to kind of come out 
you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated by that. Like, it just feels like such a cool time for youth culture. Yeah, I mean, it probably was because it was more affordable back then for people to live there. Um, you know, definitely in the early 90s, it was a lot more affordable. Now, I don't know how people live there. It's like New York. I don't know how people live in New York and have being a band. It seems impossible, but... Um, I don't know if people, people live anywhere. Like, I, <laughs> like in Toronto right now, I look around, I'm like, how would you form a band? Like, where would you practice? Yeah, it's, I don't know. How do people do it? How do you do it? <laughs> I don't know. I think, I honestly think though, that that's what makes this so vital in terms of a culture still is because it is so adaptable and because like anyone can do it. Any space is appropriate for a concert. Any piece of gear can be turned into an instrument if need be. And I think that's, you know, anything that gives kids permission to make art is, I think is going to survive or find a way to survive. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. When, what was the first zine you remember seeing? Like, had you seen zines in Portland prior to, or? Well, I, I don't remember seeing zines in Portland, but it's funny because I did see a zine in Vancouver at the Vancouver Public Library. There was a stack that someone had left um, of this fanzine called Parker's Bark. And it actually was made by, um, Rebecca Gates from the Spinanes, who oh, I didn't wow. know. I don't, this, I don't think the Spinanes didn't even exist yet. We're talking like 1984, five, maybe six, somewhere in there. I was in high school and there was, yeah, just this stack of zines sitting on the ground. I'd never seen one before. So of course I took it and um, it was like, you know, record reviews and all that kind of stuff. And so I started writing her postcards and we kind of had like a pen pal thing going. And um then she sent me like Parker's Bark 2 and 3 and stuff. But that was the that was the only fanzine I knew about at all until I graduated and went to Evergreen. And then I saw Kathleen's fanzine and I saw Toby's fanzine. And then I lived in a house with this guy who did a fanzine called, um, what was it called? Something funny. Vicious Hippies from Pan to Hell or something like that. I don't know. There were just all these, you know, people were putting fanzines out. You just see them all the time laying around campus and stuff. But um, yeah, that one in high school was the one I remember. In fact, Rebecca and I still are sort of like, hey, remember when I used to write postcards when I was 15? You had that fanzine that when we, neither of us understands how it ended up at the Vancouver Library because she was from in Portland. She was like, I don't know how it got there. I don't remember ever going to Vancouver to drop off a stack of fanzines at the library, but it's amazing where these things wound up, zines. It was like putting a message in a bottle and tossing it in the ocean. Exactly. I still have those zines too. I kept them because it's like, you find something like that. It really is like a message in one. You're like someone, <laughs> there's someone out there that is interesting in making this and maybe they live here. Maybe they live in my town. Maybe I can be friends with them. It turns out she didn't, but yeah. Yeah. It's, it's with fanzines. It wasn't until I got to university because like, you know, being in punk, like there's just part of the culture you know like you write a fanzine someone makes a fanzine you trade it it's just and then getting university and people bringing up zines in, like as academic sources in in yeah that's so crazy. it's so, <laughs> so <wild>. crazy to me <laughs> but it's, i mean it's cool but it's like I, it's it's odd i feel like it's just so i know like what what does it feel like to know that you've you've helped affect that kind of change the culture is so different now like i I went to the Bikini Kill show when you played Toronto and I didn't get to see you back in the day, but I certainly have videos, like some wild videos and there's fights, you bands having to fight the audience and people are talking shit and just being assholes the whole way through to now coming back. And it's just this sort of reverence. I can't think of like a more jarring kind of 
live experience than Bikini Kill in the 90s versus Bikini Kill today. Yeah, it's definitely different. That's for sure. Um, yeah, this last tour that we did, it was kind of just like pure joy fest, you know, like just, but it was also because the audience was completely different, not completely different, but, you know, pretty different. It was like people who were really familiar with the music and had been listening to it for a long time and never seen the band. So it's like, it really meant something to them. Those are the people that are showing up this year. Whereas like in the nineties, it was just whoever, you know, sometimes it was people that liked the band. Sometimes it was people that hated the band with the passion and were willing to spend $5 to come in and like, you know, be jerks mm. or whatever. Mm. But I mean, to be fair, it wasn't like every single show we played in the nineties was some kind of like brawl. It definitely wasn't like that. And especially toward the end of the band, it was like, you know, mostly our fans were showing up, but you know, yeah, definitely there were, there were lots of crazy shows that we didn't have anything like that on this last tour. Thankfully. <laughs> it also feels like the band was a topic very quickly after you formed very quickly after the record started getting out there, bikini kill, like it felt important. I think that's probably why it felt threatening to a lot of people too, but it, it was like, it wasn't like one of those bands where you look at years after the fact and you're like, oh, wow, they were they were underrated. Not that you guys didn't, as you're saying, suffer through these terrible experiences live and have to deal with this stuff. But there was, there was always a sense of importance about the band. Could you feel that inside that how things were kind of like it felt like everything was kind of gravitating towards it? I can't say that it felt like that at the time, just because, you know, we didn't have any understanding really of what was happening outside of our band reality. We knew what happened when we went on tour and we talked to people, we knew that we were getting tons of letters. So in that sense, we kind of knew that something was happening, but it was also like, you know, we didn't have a lot of records out. We had a cassette out for a really long time. So then people would find out about us from the cassette or um, we're, I feel like there was a lot of word of mouth. Like, again, this is like pre-internet. So it's like people, it was like the phone game or something. People would hear these things about us and our shows. And then it would get, or, and then it was like, I heard that they, you know, whatever, like just crazy stuff about us that was totally not true. And then, so people would show up being really mad about, and they'd never seen us or heard our music or anything. So it's kind of like, there was, there was that for a long time. And then, and then once the record started coming out, then, you know, we definitely got tons and tons of letters from people. So we knew something was happening, but it was, you know, it's hard to tell if you're just in your band reality, it's hard to tell what kind of impact you're having. We knew that the media was interested, but that didn't necessarily mean anything real was happening. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like they'll just write about anything. So it's like, Oh, Newsweek wants to write about you guys, or, you know, spin wants to write about you guys. It's kind of like, okay, like, I don't care really about that, but, um, you know, I don't think we ever did any interviews really we might've done one or two, but we kind of were like, that's just seemed irrelevant or something. So we knew the media was interested and we knew that we were getting lots of letters from people, but, um, definitely would not have anticipated, would not have had the future window of what's going on now, would not have thought that it would have had the kind of long impact. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think it's also because the scene that you would exist in now as a new band, you kind of create. So it's, it's fascinating to me looking at old flyers and seeing all the different scenes that Bikini Kill winds up being a part of and all the different kind of bands you wind up playing with. Like there's very few bands in the nineties that can connect Epitaph to Ebullition, 
but Bikini Kill is a band that would be could play with Rancid, and then at the same time play with with you know Econochrist or Born Against or someone much more on the sort of more political DIY end of things. And then there's also Nirvana too. And it's like there's not a lot of bands that are able to kind of exist in all these different worlds at the same time. It's just interesting to me to hear you say that because from my perspective, I don't understand what the distinction is. Like I don't see them as being super disparate. I, I, they, you're right. And I think now it, it certainly doesn't. And I'm, I definitely can connect the dots between them very easily, but at the time, maybe it was just the people around me involved in the ebullition scene, but there was absolutely no love for anything that was on sort of the epifat side of things. And by, by the mid nineties, Nirvana was so huge. And that grunge Seattle thing was so huge. It felt completely divorced from yeah the fact that it did come out of this DIY thing. And, you know, like, I don't know, it's just always, Bikini Kill's always been this band that, independent of all the incredible music and the legacy, just as, like, a band that exists on flyers, there's very few bands that would share flyers <laughs> with all three of these worlds. Or be on compilations just, with all That's these just bands. really an interesting perspective. I don't know, maybe it's just the, the time that we came out of was, like, all kinds of bands were playing like that together, you know, like Beat Happening would play with Nirvana or whatever. I'm not even sure if they actually played together, but it's like everybody was friends. And so there would be really what maybe from the outside might look like things that don't really fit together. Mm -hmm. You know, those, those people were friends and they would play together. So I don't know. I feel like that was kind of, maybe that was sort of, I don't think that was particular to Olympia, I think, but you know, it was a special thing about Olympia is that, things weren't, from my perspective, again, Toby might have a different take on it, but from my perspective, things weren't really um, categorized like that, you know, or separated out. It was sort of like if you were friends with someone and you liked their band, even if they didn't sound like your band or whatever, you might play with them. I mean, I guess if you had ideological differences with someone, maybe you wouldn't, but I can't remember that that, that would have ever come up. Like, I don't, you know. It did. It got heavy though at, for a moment with the the idea of what is and you know obviously I'm using this term very loosely, but what is and isn't selling out. You know, like Jello Biafra got his legs yeah. broken by that guy at the Gilman. By that's just he, crazy. It's crazy. It's that's but but that was a level of of kind of like fervor and dogma, like the anti major label tirades and MRR that would go on. Like I just hate that shit. Sorry, but no, please. <laughs> Holy hate that shit. I think it's stupid. I completely understand the anti-major label stance. Totally understand it. That was real. They were scooping up bands and it was, you know, it was having an impact on the underground scene and they definitely weren't friends of the underground. They weren't supporting the underground scene. So I totally understand the antipathy. But on the other hand, it's like Nirvana was still a punk band after they signed. You know, it was just like then everybody could get their record. And I don't know. I mean, it's not like, it's not like we didn't feel that tension. We definitely did. And we would never have signed to a major label, but um, I don't know. I, I just feel like there was a lot of judgment going on that was kind of unfair and um, damaging. Mm. You know what I mean? That, I don't know. I just, especially the MRR thing that I'm just so, over that. <laughs> you know, I love maximum rock and roll. That was my first punk uh, ma magazine, but it's like, I just, that kind of like high horse thing, I'm not, I'm just not into it. It's just, it's like, to me, that seems like the opposite of punk. That's just like, so the rigidity of like identity, like you either are, or you aren't, and these are the criteria. And 
I don't know. I mean, I understand disagreeing with people making certain decisions or whatever, but I feel like categorically just rejecting entire bands or something because of something that they did. I don't know. Everybody can do what they want. That's just, it's not my thing. It also seems so quaint now in the world of Spotify and YouTube and, you know, it's like, yeah, we're all, we're all in the same playing field at this point. And it's, but I can understand. And maybe because I did feel at times this kind of like intense anxiety over losing this music because you you had to fight to find it. And once you found it, you're like, I don't want anything to ruin this thing that I, I cling so desperately to. Yeah, no, I totally understand that. And I'm definitely not saying like, oh, major labels are all fine. It's yeah. totally fine for all the punk bands to sign to major labels. I'm not. I'm just saying like, you know, bands made decisions for a lot of reasons. And in some ways, it's kind of nobody's business. And it's like, if you decide not to like them, that's fine. But I don't know, just this kind of group grouping of anyone who makes a certain kind of decision is like evil and needs to be shunned from the in-group. It's like, it just seemed to me... Um, it seemed to me stupid. (laughs) And also you realize, sorry, go on. I mean, chaos. No, I I mean, but you're totally right that it's like the, the major labels and that whole thing was definitely a destructive force. You know, it was like, I I think now like looking back on it, I realized that if, you know, if these bands hadn't signed to major labels, there wouldn't be that groundswell of kids getting into it that you need to replenish this thing. There's that. But then, of course, on the other hand, there's the bands that sign to a major label, get a pile of money, make a record and immediately break up. There, I mean, tons of them. Right. So it's kind of like. They're rolling the dice on their band, but mm-hmm. it seems like it's obviously tends to be a really bad decision for lots of bands. It usually is the kiss of death. That's usually the last thing they do. And then they break up. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, sometimes it works out for people and then they end up reaching a lot of people. Yeah, like it's it's now I realize like if. Nirvana hadn't signed on the major label, I probably wouldn't have gotten 1991 The Year Punk Broke at the video at the HMV store. And I wouldn't be into it. You know, like you need those those on ramps for for people to kind of to get like into Quincy. stuff. <laughs> Quincy, exactly. Like how many kids were obviously mortified by it, but how many kids were like, oh, this seems interesting. What's this? <laughs> no, the Quincy punks are terrible, don't you? You remember that episode? Yeah, monsters. Totally that was not that was yeah. not the on ramp for me. The chips punks too are are bad people. Chips punks, exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, but no, that was kind of one of the reasons why I'm totally not connecting Bikini Kill to the Quincy Punks. But that was sort of one of the reasons why we decided to license our songs to some movies and things here and there. Like we were in that episode of Roseanne back in the '90s. It wasn't like a super conscious decision, but it's also we liked Roseanne, so we're like, oh, we like it. Of course, they can use the music but it was also just the acknowledgement that sometimes that's how people find out about stuff you know yeah and that's just that's just the way it is for most people i don't know if that's the, if it's the same way now with you know the internet and people's access but um definitely back then it was sort of like sometimes that's the entry point well a huge one on this show i found is tony hawk video games like now there's a generation of kids who are in bands like real bands now because they're adults but their entry point was these Tony Hawk soundtracks that you would hear bands that you wouldn't hear on the radio, right. on the radio. Right. And uh, like, did those bands get tons of shit for being on the Tony Hawk soundtrack? Probably, you know, but it's and they all these other people to do things. So it's kind of like, I don't I, know. 
I, I think it might have changed too for kids. Like I think the idea of selling out is probably I don't know. I, I'm I'm a very old person, but I, I imagine like for younger kids, like it it seems a little quaint to kind of talk about this stuff these days. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. It does seem to be kind of a, a, a an idea that has currency. It's definitely not like it was back then. Yeah, like it seems like you sell out now by being a bad person or or changing your you know like like going back on something you said. Like that seems to be the sell out more than like you signed being this inconsistent or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like inconsistency or like having an incoherent kind of position on something. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Cuz I I just can't see you know you signed with this major label corporation versus this independently wealthy person that runs an independent label that you know right because the distinctions are kind of it's all kind of gray a gray area i feel like in there yeah they're all going to wind up in the same place what was the uh the early kind of tours for you like like we mentioned the shows you know being up and down but like getting out on the road and kind of seeing what punk was like outside of so olympia is kind of you know as you're saying it's there's a i'm sure there weren't utopian parts to it but it seems fairly utopian and it's punk kind of a makeup Super supportive. Yeah, very supportive. I mean, you know, people can be standoffish or whatever, but in general, it was a very supportive scene, you know. Um, yeah, the first tours were kind of nuts, really. Um, not a ton of people came. I mean, the first tours that we did were um, with Nation of Ulysses. We were opening for them, uh, which they were great. They were so fun. We just were on tour the whole time together, and it was just hilarious. But um, the shows, you know, sometimes they were big and fun and crazy but sometimes it would be like five people showed up you know yeah. so it it wasn't like they were all completely chaotic <laughs> it's definitely like we played some shows that were like crickets you know but those guys were always there so they would always be in the audience and we'd always be in the audience for them so it was fun no matter what happened but you know it was definitely way rougher it was definitely like you're playing in people's basements you're playing in a cow pasture you know someone's dragged out a generator and you're playing in the middle of a field or under an apple tree or in a kinko's basement or you know just the venues were super bizarre but um it was fun i mean i don't know it was it was definitely a lot crazier than it was on this last week <laughs> everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But then this last tour, you know, it was battling COVID and battling show cancellations and whatnot. So it wasn't without... I guess different kinds of stuff. No, it had, it had hardships, just different hardship. Yeah. We, weren't sleeping, we weren't sleeping on people's floors. I mean, the first tour we did, we didn't even, we didn't even sleep between the shows. We drove basically from San Francisco all the way to DC playing shows every night and then driving after the show. I think there was one night maybe in Louisville when we slept on someone's floor for a few hours, but it was like, you know, James Canty booked the show. He's great, by the way. He's totally did an awesome job booking the show, booking the tour. But like, there just weren't any days off. <laughs> it's like, you look at the map and you're like, oh, I guess we could just drive to um, 
we'll drive from there to Lawrence, Kansas and from Lawrence, Kansas to Louisville. And then, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. 10 hour drives or something, which you can do that when you're 21, but it's a little, if that was your first tour, it's a little nuts. That was my first tour. I was just like, this is not sustainable. I don't know how people do this, but it turns out they don't. It turns out they usually have days off and sleep, but. Well, certainly not in the DIY circuit, like you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and were any of you a vegetarian or, or, because that was impossible touring back then with that kind of, especially when you got the Midwest. Yeah. I feel like we had a Taco Bell a lot, you know, yeah. Yeah. I think everybody did. Free Chipotle. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There was no Chipotle, no Chipotle, no Whole Foods, no Chipotle, none of that stuff. You know, we just ate a lot of trash, like Doritos and stuff. It's like, I don't, I don't think anyone was a vegan, but we had some vegetarians. Yeah, it was a challenge for sure. <laughs> I've always been fascinated by that kind of like Washington to Washington connection because yeah, it the scenes you know once again as an outsider, uh, but but seems so different in like the way they're organized, you know, and just like the types of bands they're coming to it, and even the approach to music feels. But in some ways, they're really similar. Like the the Northwest music scene outside of Olympia was not earnest. You know what I mean? I feel like that was the real divide back then was like earnest versus like, I don't want to say ironic, but like, you know, not earnest. Yeah. Mudhoney's kind of got that vibe. I know exactly. exactly. That's what I'm talking about. The whole yeah. Seattle scene was like not earnest, yeah. which, you know, I mean, I, I like a lot of those bands. It's not, there's no shade on that, but I feel like that really was a divide in terms of the scenes or in terms of the bands. And definitely dc had the earnest thing going and we had the earnest thing going so i feel like there definitely was a connection that way you know like mm -hmm. there was a there was kind of a simpatico thing they're like oh i see i see you guys are doing something that you care about and you're being kind of direct about it whereas i feel like a lot of other bands were kind of just tongue-in-cheek whatever doing their thing yeah and also i guess like along the same sort of lines there feels like there's a um a thesis to the art that's being created by these bands in, in Olympia and in DC. Like there's a, it's not just about sending up rock stars or making fun of kiss. It's like, we're trying to build something or we're, I don't know, were you trying to build something? It feels like it's you're trying yeah, to Yeah. Yeah. Like we're taking a position on something, Yeah, which at the time was not cool at all to take a position on anything. Very not cool. You know? Um, it was a slacker, like, the height of the slacker. Kind yeah, of so taking yourself too seriously was like a cardinal sin. You know, if you were taking any kind of political position or anything like that, coming out too strongly on anything like that, it was um, very unfashionable in the early 90s, late 80s and early 90s. Um, outside of D.C., you know, I mean, I, I'm not, I can't think of too many other scenes where people were like taking a really strong political stand in their music or in their, the way that their bands were being presented or whatever. Um, but also that there was personnel, you know, there were people that just were like, Calvin grew up in DC, right? And Kathleen lived in DC. So there definitely were, it was like a, an exchange, human exchange program there, yeah. I feel like. Yeah, because, and I think there's even in Dance of Days, there's a story about, I think you and Fugazi, you're like your bands in Fugazi being in DC, eating beans in a house, kind of watching, I think maybe Nirvana happen or something. There, there's like quite a poignant story in that book that I'm probably completely misquoting now or misremembering, but it just, uh, 
yeah, it does feel like, like you're saying, there's this sort of, uh, uh, you know, like stoicness between the two scenes. I don't know if it's stoicness really, but it there was a sort of unfashionableness to it that um, I think we kind of bonded over. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think, well, Fugazi got a lot of shit too for being too earnest, you know, and like trying to make their shows safe. People are like, you're just trying to be like, my dad or something you know what i mean it was like they kind of were in an impossible situation because their shows were so huge and out of control and they were trying to make sure nobody died you know but then at the same time people are like you can't tell me what to do so there was definitely like a don't boss me around kind of thing with both of our bands because you know it's not like kathleen was bossing people around in the audience but a little bit because some shit would happen and she would be like is everything okay like checking in with people and some people don't like that (laughs) some people don't want to be you know, talked to from stage, which I totally understand. But if you're on a stage and stuff's going on, you kind of have a, you feel responsible, you know, to like make sure everybody's okay. So I feel like we had that kind of in common of like, oh, everybody thinks we're like, you know, trying to like nanny state the punk scene or something. (laughs) I I think, and I think that's one of the things that I kind of, certainly with Ian missed is this sort of idea of these aren't people telling you that you, this is the only way to do things. It's saying, this is how we want things at our shows. If you don't like it, go do your own show. And I think, but also that there's a reason for it. That's not just like, I'm trying to boss you around. It's that maybe they played a show and someone fell on their head and was paralyzed. You know what I mean? It's like, maybe they've had these kind of experiences that they're like, I don't want to have that experience anymore where I feel responsible for someone going out of here in a stretcher. And so I, there's something I can do about it. So I'm going to, you know, so it's, you know. I think both, you know, Bikini Kill and Fugazi, like you're saying Fugazi was a no-win situation. It sounded like Bikini Kill feels like you must have been put in that situation too, where you're just putting out experiences, um, you know, lyrics, making you're just making a band and people take it up as dogma and people are coming to it and approaching it like it's uh and like a word handed down from on high and uh like you're saying people come to challenge it because even fans though like expect it to live up to some sort of version that they have of what this thing is oh definitely and that definitely happened a lot after after riot girl happened because you know i mean the band existed before riot girl and then riot girl happened and some of us weren't even involved like i was gone when riot girl started i wasn't even in the country and then you know, I don't think Toby and I ever went to any of the meetings. And again, this is a distinction maybe without a difference at this point, but like having been in the band, it's a, it's, there's a difference, you know, there's a distinction to be made, which is that they're, they were totally separate, at least in our minds, right? Girl and Bikini were totally separate, but the people particularly later in the nineties, people coming to the shows had kind of flattened it, conflated the two things together. So that like something that maybe had happened in their local riot girl meeting that we had nothing to do with. We didn't know any of the people involved. We didn't know any, you know what I mean? It's like, we're not, we're not controlling riot girl meetings all over the country. We had nothing to do with it. Kathleen wasn't even involved after the first year, I think. Or yeah. something. It was kind of like, it was almost like AA or something. It was like, oh, there's all these meetings going on. They're all being run in their own way, which is cool. That's like, you know, that's probably what should happen. But at the same time, for some reason, our band was having to answer for the behavior of individuals in these in these local groups. 
And yeah, people would show up and be yelling at us and stuff. And we were just like, oh, we don't even know these people. Yeah. We don't know what happened. I'm sorry. Maybe go talk to them. You know, like <laughs> people think it's a McDonald's. You're don't like the CEO. Yeah, definitely. It's like, we're not the CEO of Rye Girl. Just these are people that you know in your town. Maybe you should go just work it out or something. I don't know. It's, it's weird too. You know, it's very much, I guess, you know, very different, but what happened with straight edge too, where all of a sudden Ian has to answer for every single person that's picked this up and, and done something with it, like, you know, and no connection to it. Like, it's just sort of an idea you're putting on the world and then people interpret it. Right. And then you get blamed for anything that they do. So. Yeah. And, and it's almost like three things now with Riot Girl. Like there's obviously, you know, the original zine and sort of this, this concept thing that bikini kills part of, and then there's sort of this sort of co codifying of it in the meeting era but now it's almost like a genre. Like people will talk about Riot Girl bands. Like there's any sonic connection between even the bands that were from Olympia back then. Well, right. But not even sonic connection, but like any kind of criteria yeah. to hold them together other than that there's women in bands. And then they'll lump in bands that were way before Riot Girl even started. Like, oh, Babes in Toyland is a Riot Girl band. Like, I don't think they would identify as that. They started in like the late eighties. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? They started way before Riot Girl. Um, or L7, they'll just like lump in all these bands. It's like, no, we were inspired by them. So if like, you know, if you're just going to say every band with a woman in it is a rock girl band, then, you know, what does that mean? That's creepy and sexist. And especially like you're saying, you said earlier, there's this like flattening and the nuance is all gone. And it's just presented as this block that really misses the point. Like really just completely... Yeah, it's just not useful either. Yeah. It's like it's it's fine to have um, detail. <laughs> Detail's fine. Everything doesn't have to be categorized and put into these artificial kind of slots. I don't know, but I see this with all. I see this happening with kind of almost all the genres of punk or whatever, if you want to call them genres. Like I don't know, my some people that have been talking to about this, we call it the like the hardcore industrial complex or the right girl industrial complex or the grunge industrial complex. And it's like, yeah, everything gets flattened and categorized and packaged. And then there's like a million movies and books made about it. And it's all shoved into this thing, but it's like, it does, it's not true. You know what I mean? Like most of it is just not true. Like, and it just is this constant feeding of the capitalist machine or something like that. we need another movie about hardcore or we need another book about right girl or grunge just like do we i don't i don't think we do people love i guess myths and like you know you can't have the story you got to surround it in this sort of like myth pearl like myth you know that, that turns it into something shiny and doesn't resemble what it originally was but that's all. so much less interesting than what actually happened. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? That's that's the thing I don't understand. It's like, I mean, I, I totally like when people write books, you know, biographies or whatever. Like, that's me. I feel like it's interesting, but I don't know. Have you ever thought about writing a book? Like, I talked to Toby about this, too. Like, there's obviously you're great writers. Like, the, I've got the zines over here to prove it, too, um, from back then. But, like, because so much of it is people and there, there definitely have been books written by people from the inside, but a lot of the books are like outside looking in and trying right. to figure this out. Trying to make sense of it. That's what I'm talking about. And they make sense of it in the way that makes sense to them. But mm. oftentimes we read those books and we're like, wow, that's not really what 
we thought happened at all, but you know, it's like they're describing our band and what happened and it's sort of, doesn't really ring true. I mean, that's the thing. It was way more complicated and nuanced and bizarre than most of the representations of what happened in my mind. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would I would like to write about it. I know Toby's been writing about it. Kathleen is writing about it. She wrote a book. It's going to come out. But um, did you know her in Portland? Did you ever meet her or cross paths with her going to show yeah. town? Yeah, yeah. I knew, well, I knew her at Evergreen, which was, I mean, before Evergreen sort of thing. Oh, like, like high school? No, no. You no, know, just like crossing paths or anything, because it's you're all kind of like. That's also fascinating is how you're all like obviously hours separated by distance, but all like in different parts of this sort of like Pacific Northwest underground DIY scene. And I'm yes, once again throwing REM into the DIY underground scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean the the distance between Portland and Vancouver and Olympia in the eighties was massive. Yeah. Massive. Like different planets. I feel like, you know, I mean, yeah, I took a bus into Portland, but the chances of me bumping into Kathleen were pretty slim. I guess it could have possibly happened, but it didn't. Did you ever go to Poison Idea shows? I didn't know. I knew who they were, but I didn't. I wasn't interested in Poison Idea. It didn't sound like anything to me. It's so funny because like Toby kind of said the same thing. And, uh, you know, once again, I guess it's like. That was that was one of the bands that my brother tried to get me into that that one really did not stick. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Yeah, I don't know. I'll pass on that one. <laughs> well, Kathleen roadied for him for uh, a. I know, a, I know. That's tour. maybe that's why I didn't meet her because I never. Yeah, you weren't at the poison idea show. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> I got uh, I got no time for this this scene here, and yeah, it's a uh, it's it's definitely a scene, and I think that people keep getting more and more interested by because you know because there is no definable sonic attached to it, so it's not like there's a sound you can kind of pin it to. It's more just like an idea and ideas just, just grow, you know, like it's, uh, it, well, I guess, I guess we've already seen how far it's gone. You've got pop stars talking about it. that might not necessarily have any relationship to punk culture other than riot girl being the thing that spoke to them. And that's the thing they kind of bring into their world. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> what I think, are you talking about? <laughs> pretty sure I've Avril Lavigne mentioned riot girl back in the day. Oh, really? I'm not a hundred percent on that, but uh, I'm pretty sure because I, I I definitely I guess I could see that. I mean, she's kind of punky, right? Like, yeah, that makes sense. And I'm like, not about Beyonce or something. No, but like uh, Phoebe Bridgers when she was on the podcast on on here talking about it, and you know, like uh, I think we're I honestly think Taylor Swift. Give it a year or two, Taylor Swift's going to drop in a show. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's going to go nuts. But again, I feel like it's been so many decades of it being kind of codified as this thing that happened that I think, I guess I wouldn't be that surprised at this point. Cause you know, yeah, it's just, it's been so many books and stuff written about it that I could see it bubbling up to that, to the surface. And like, you know, like we talked about like the cell or like I said, you know, the sellout idea being, you know, you, you being bands that didn't stay true to whatever they were like bikini kills, you know, certainly from the outside as, as someone as a fan, it's always been this band. And there's never been a point where it's like, oh, fuck all that shit we said back then. Like, we don't care about that. Or, you know, it's never, it's never sold you out as a fan. Yeah, I would say that's accurate. Yeah. And, and I think that's the thing is, oh, well, I think certainly with the Riot Girl thing, it's, 
it's something when you see a young like I had a kid in front of me who was there with their parent and the kid must have been I'm going to say six or seven and watching the six or seven year old like sing along to every word it's like oh my gosh there's definitely going to be another generation of this but isn't that screwed up that a six-year-old was singing those lyrics because I'm sorry but like those are not <laughs> yeah family-friendly lyrics that's always a little weird to me when the six-year-old is in the front yeah but like let's be honest like like how many creepy kiss songs are there or how many terrifyingly upsetting uh that's true you know songs about underage young women are there by adult male no but that's stars. so normalized right yeah, like that's yeah. so normalized that people don't even notice that that's creepy but you know i feel like some of kathleen's lyrics are you know they're pretty raw pretty raw yes <laughs> for, for children if that wasn't meant for children that's the other kind of weird thing about the like rock camp for girls always wanted to do bikini kill songs and stuff it's like y'all read the lyric sheet like this is not <laughs> for 10 year olds we weren't i mean it, i get it it's like inspiring or whatever so they want it to be like have the music that's inspiring for the kids to inspire the kids but it's also kind of like just i don't know i don't know i feel I, it's it's weird it's it's having weird. had a kid at this point i'm sort of like that's not appropriate i don't think that that's appropriate rebel girl <laughs> fine rebel girl's fine but like much beyond that yeah there's some other songs that are good. <laughs> There should be a like NC, I don't know, 13 or 14 rating. There's a reason Rapper Girl is in uh, 10 Things I Hate About You and, <laughs> and there's not some deeper cuts in the soundtrack. Exactly, exactly. That's what I'm saying. So yeah, people were bringing little kids to these shows and like the little ones don't even know what we're talking about. So that's yeah. fine. But then there comes the point of like comprehension somewhere in the sevens, I think, where it starts I, to be a little awkward. I I 100% and like... And I and and once again, just as a parent, though, like knowing the shit, like even Kathleen on the Toronto show talking about the shit she dealt with at school at about seven or eight years old, it's like as much as you don't, and obviously certain there's ways to broach it, I guess, with the younger people, but it's almost like we have to warn these kids and these kids finding some sort of like I don't know connection or or not a connection, but like a support from the art that that's out there as opposed to like angel in the centerfold or, or some <laughs> bullshit, you know, that they're being fed at the Force time. Fed. Like, yeah. No, I agree. There's a part of me that hundred percent agrees with that. That's sort of like, if it can help anyone of any age, then absolutely, you know, yeah. but I don't know. It feels like it, it, talking to people that it's almost like, um, in the same way, punk is something that gives you permission to make music like when people found whatever this riot girl thing is like, it's ultimately feminism, but given to people in a package that is like, I don't know, given, it's accessible to a way that younger people can find it and it's cool. And it's, it gets them into the headier ideology, but in a, and speaking for myself, like it, but through a thing that was punk and, and it just like, it's like given being given the same thing, getting punk is like, you know, you have permission to, to explore all these thoughts and all these philosophies through this movement or this band band come movement, I guess. Yeah, totally. I get it. I mean, that's, that's probably the main appeal for kids with our band is that it's um, accessible in that way. And it's like, I'm glad, I'm glad that people find it accessible, you know, and can get into feminism through our band and maybe it leads them to other stuff, you know, so 
Yeah, well, and, and the music that. rips. Like I think that's the other thing. <laughs> the songs are fucking well, thank awesome. You. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> if it didn't shred, you know, what would be the point, right? <laughs> but do seven year olds really care about shredding? I don't know. Probably not. I well, this my my uh, I've exposed them to everything. You know, like I really wanted to like not be like, oh well, here's what I like, and you'll be yeah. like. And the weirdest thing is my my seven year old is now obsessed with Nirvana. That's cool. That makes sense. It does. And I've always wondered, like, I've always kind of been of the mind, like, it could have been any number of other bands, like, but now I'm like, no, they did have songs that resonate in a way that other bands didn't necessarily have these songs. Like, it might not. They were like pop songs. I mean, they were like, you know, Beatles based pop songs. They definitely, they definitely are catchy. I can understand a kid getting into it. Yeah, it's weird to watch it like and then but it's also amazing because now I can play them anything if I can connect it back to Nirvana. Oh my gosh, we listen to a lot of wipers now. We listen to a lot of Melvins now. That's cool. Yeah, there's a lot you can pull in with that kind of a connection. Were the Melvins were you and because Toby on the show talked about how important that band was to her, but were they as important to you or is it something that I love the Melvins, but I didn't know about them until I was in college. You know, I didn't I didn't know about them until I moved to Olympia. Yeah. But they play, they played a lot. Yeah. And um we I don't know if Bikini Kill I don't think Bikini Kill ever played with the Melvins, not to my knowledge. Maybe we did. But um one time in the early 90s Bratmobile played with opening for the Melvins in Olympia and Bratmobile, you know, you think of Bratmobile as just the three members, but there was a period of time where they would pull in people like pulling bass players and pulling people to do other things and they'd have someone else playing guitar, someone else playing drums or whatever. Um, and then one, so one of those iterations was me on bass and this woman, Michelle Noel, I think was also on bass. So there's like two bass players, which you don't think of Bratmobile as having any bass player. So having two is kind of weird, but I mean, if you're opening for the Melvins, you've got to have a bass player. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think that was their reasoning. I think they just wanted, I don't, I actually can't remember the thinking behind it or whatever, but they were just sort of like, do you want to play bass? And I was like, of course I want to play bass with Bratmobile opening for the Melvin. So um, I feel like that must've been 91, maybe that was pretty early. That was maybe right after Bikini Kill started. I love that Bikini Kill song that cuts off on the reissue. That's like a total like dirgy melvin style song on the demo reissue i don't know what you're talking about it's like a there's a song that was on. i don't listen to our records what is it (laughs) on the first demo there's like there were two unreleased songs that came out on that reissue okay yeah released and there's one song that's pretty slow it's got and it you don't even finish the song it just stops the tape runs out or something the tape ran out but it's (laughs) uh what was it maybe it was live or a practice or something i think it i think it's from the demo tape recording session oh right oh right 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 that's right but it wasn't on the demo tape it was no it's on it's on that reissue that you did okay 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 yeah um well that's so that's the other thing is that when you think of our band you probably i don't know if anybody thinks about our music they probably think about rebel girl or like whatever the later songs but for sure there was this early period of time where we had those super dirgy probably Melvin's influenced, I don't know, um, super grungy kind of songs that didn't sound anything like later Bikini Kill. And those, those, yeah, we kind of stopped playing those pretty quickly, but um, I feel like that was just because we were trying to figure out who was going to play what, like we were switching around a lot and Billy had just joined the band. And so 
there were songs where Kathleen had written the song and she was playing bass and singing. So then it was sort of like, well, now we have two guitar players kind of thing. And it just ended up sounding really dirty. And for some reason, those songs that she wrote were kind of a little bit dirty or something. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there was definitely an early period of time where we had kind of a, I mean, I would love to think that we sounded like the Melvins. We definitely did not sound like the Melvins. <laughs> but it was in the air. You know what I mean? We were all listening to Nirvana and early Nirvana, like Bleach or whatever. And um, I'm sure yeah. that it it permeated. You had to exercise way. that Pacific Northwest grunge. Sound I don't know. I think we just on. got I think we just got better at playing. You know, I think we just learned how to play faster. Cause you know, like I said, I mean, Toby always wanted to be, I think she always wanted us to be in a like a fast punk band. I think that was her idea. Like I had said, I did the Olympia history, um, oral history project interview. And I was saying that um, when we first started the band, I didn't know how to play guitar or bass or anything like that. And so she was sort of trying to be encouraging and being like, giving me records and being like, you should listen to this and you should listen to that. And it was just stuff that was impossible to play. You know, if you've just picked up a guitar, you can't play void. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so it's just like, I don't know why you're giving me this. If you're trying to encourage me, it's not very encouraging. But I mean, I liked it. But, um, you know, we were listening to Minor Threat too. I, I had a cassette that had the Minor Threat records on both sides or whatever. And I just listened to that in my car all the time. And that was sort of aspirational, you know, like someday we'll be able to play fast. But, um, and it wasn't like Billy was holding us back and it wasn't like Toby was holding us back. It was like, I couldn't play bass that fast. That just was not, you know, takes a while to learn how to do that. So. Oh yeah. Well, especially like <laughs> you're trying to play guitar like Bubba. <laughs> like, like, I just do this. <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, I, yeah, Kathleen was writing songs and I feel like they just kind of settled into kind of a slow thing. And then gradually they just started speeding up. I don't know. But I mean, I, I was totally into that as an idea. Like if we could sound like faith or minor thread or something, I was like, that would be great. I didn't see that. happening. <laughs> like, maybe someday. Well, it's so weird to think of like, you know, what, because obviously the sound is so defining, you know, bikini kills, like interesting to kind of think of it going in a different way and would it have had the resonance that it does have if it had been just sort of like a straight up, hardcore band it's interesting too because like when i brought up i i've said bikini was a hardcore band to toby and toby's like well we're kind of like an anti-hardcore band <laughs> that's interesting what did she mean by anti-hardcore she said she was going through a period of really kind of hating hardcore around then and that's she, so weird because she gave me all those records i know i know but i think you know it's like sort of this idealized version of hardcore versus the people around you that are waving the flag at that time yeah yeah for sure i could see that well, definitely in Olympia, I could see her being like anti the Olympia hardcore scene. Maybe she thought it was an obnoxious or something. But the other thing is like, you know, Billy's a phenomenal guitar player and he always was, you know, from the minute I met him, he was already, he'd already been in a whole bunch of bands and he was a phenomenal guitar player. He already had his own style and he wasn't a hardcore player. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't a chugga chugga kind of player. He was like way more nuanced and arty and kind of magical so it's like i don't think we ever would have been like that kind of a band you know that toby was hating on it that was never in the cards for us even if i had learned how to play like that um i don't think that that would have happened just because of who, who was you know um, definitely billy would have kept it from sounding like that i think 
and it was also it was like at that time especially in like the the early 90s there's not really that many bands that are doing sort of fast traditional hardcore like it was like it seems like a low point for that particular style yeah i don't feel like people were really playing punk music i mean in the in the sort of 70s sense you know i know yeah. that some people that saw us early on were like that was one comment that we got was like you guys are like playing um 70s punk to kids who've never heard 70s punk and that's why they don't really like your band or get it or whatever like but i didn't really understand i was like well i don't think we're playing 70s punk but so i don't really know what they meant but it wasn't it didn't um it didn't really fit in with what was going on you know i mean we might have sounded kind of grungy and dirgy but we definitely didn't sound like you know mud honey or something like that we weren't uh, yeah it doesn't have that kind of like kiss influence and i you know like i find a lot yeah, of no kiss influence that's yeah. true i think and bikini kill probably has no although it's not like we didn't love kiss toby mm -hmm. and i definitely bonded over over kiss but it's not in yeah. there in terms of like you know i find like you were saying i found that thing you said you know like i'm like oh of course like the, about the earnestness of olympia versus the rest of seattle where there's almost sort of this like mocking adoration for kiss or adulation for kiss where like people are like <laughs> making fun of it but it's still in there in the mix a little bit too that's interesting i would not have even thought of putting that into the into the analysis <laughs> how you feel about kiss but um maybe i spend way too much time thinking about this stuff i'm sorry <laughs> about i don't even really like kiss like i'm not a fan but i do <laughs> i'm fascinated by their influence on, on punk yeah i guess that's true i mean they had a huge influence on melvin's right so yeah, I never thought of that really. Um, also, um, I wanted to ask you, what was it like working with Joan Jett? Like, were you a, a Runaways fan prior to working with her? I wasn't a Runaway. I didn't really know about the Runaways, but you know, I was a Joan Jett fan, and so much as she was top forty music that I yeah. had listened to as a kid. Yeah, and an iconic figure and totally cool, but I hadn't really. I mean, I'd listened to the Runaways a little bit, probably by the time we met her. Um, but I certainly didn't know about the Runaways when I was growing up. I'd never heard of them. I probably learned about them when I was like 20, you know, mm -hmm. 19 or 20. Um, I'm trying to remember how that came about. I know that we all have different versions of that story of how she came to work with us. Um, because it doesn't really matter. Some Something happened where someone gave her a cassette tape and someone had written on it for a good time called Kathleen. And it had our phone number of our group house. And then we were some weeks later we were sitting out on the porch doing an interview for some i think maybe georgetown radio station it was some radio station and the girl just had a little cassette player and then someone came running out of the house and was like joan jett's on the phone <laughs> i said talk to you guys they're like no way so then kathleen went and talked to her and it was joan jett and she wanted to um record a record with us or a single or something i mean she was super into the dc scene i don't know if you know that but no. she oh yeah she was like a super big discord fan she had already recorded i mean she'd met the fugazi guys she was a super big fugazi fan and um some other band she recorded maybe circus lupus there was another discord band that she worked with yeah she was a huge huge discord fan i mean she's from around there right she's from mm -hmm. maryland somewhere in maryland yeah maryland i think yeah you're right yeah um you know she recorded the germ she's a punk so it's like it kind of it sort of made sense a little bit uh and that's how the cassette got to her is I think the Fugazi guys went to her show. She had invited them to her show. And so 
someone gave those guys our cassette to give to her or something. I think that was the connection. But um, yeah, so she said she wanted to record us and we said, absolutely, anytime, of course. And then I can't remember how it happened, but she flew to Seattle and then we recorded that single. I had no idea she was that, I like obviously the germs thing, but I figured like that's temporally kind of just after the runaways before she becomes, like you're saying, she was like a pop star, like, like a yeah, but she has, she has total punk roots. You know, she was yeah. hanging out in LA and um, yeah, it's funny though. The recording was like, um, so it was her and Kenny Laguna, her manager, partner person. Um, and they came in and it was like, they just immediately kind of took over the recording. We had John Goodmanson, the engineer producer guy, they're running it who we'd worked with before. And everybody was kind of, paralyzed a little bit <laughs> starstruck trying to act normal but um it was super bizarre but they just got they just got rolling and they were like okay let's just you know go in there and let's see what happens or whatever but the thing I remember most is um when they were trying to mix it down they were like EQing it so they were in there EQing it and Kenny was sort of like no we gotta first of all they sped the tape up a little bit they're like this is a pop trick from the 60s you know kenny laguna was in maybe like not the archies he was in one of those like 60s bubblegum bands or something he's like this is an old studio trick where you take the song you speed it up like a you know half step or something and it makes it really more exciting I'm like okay so they did that on that whole single that's why nobody can tell what key it's played in because <laughs> we played it in a but it's when you listen to it it's not a it's like one half step up but um anyway so when they were mixing it they sped up the tape and then he was EQing. So you got to, you know, take out the 250 dB or whatever. I have no idea what I'm talking about, but he was like EQing it for radio for like car radio. Cause he's a sixties guy. Yeah. And we were like, they're never going to play this. Car radio. <laughs> you don't have to EQ it for car radio, hundred percent, not going to be played on the radio, but do whatever you want. So that's kind of why it sounds like that. Cause they just, whatever they made it sound like, I guess a Joan Jett record or something. I don't know. They tried to make it sound like something that would sound really good coming out of tiny crappy speakers which you know i mean i think it sounds pretty good so that oh, sounds awesome well, that, that's wild about them speeding up it's funny there's a lot of hardcore records that you hear that about now where like it, you know they're like yeah that record was sped up a half step in the when that, that's why it sounds that crazy and that fast yeah. yeah i mean it's just it's not really that much even it's subtle it's not yeah. like it doesn't sound like the chipmunks or anything and i, I think she's saying i think they sped up the tape and then she's saying they didn't like speed up her voice or anything but um yeah, then, so when we've been going back and playing with different guitar players, there was like, what What are you guys even playing? Like, what key is this? How are you? And it's, you know, we play it in A. Why? Yeah. So. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a record, actually. <laughs> but then the whole, like, Miss Mary Mac thing, you know, that was Joan and Kathleen sitting on the floor. They'd gotten totally stoned, and they were in there just, like, being children or something on the ground, cross-legged, doing the Miss Mary Mac. And then I think John Gidmason just decided to roll tape because he was like, we might as well capture this is totally weird <laughs> and we were laughing in the control room so that part where they're like they're laughing at us or whatever like we were totally laughing at them it was hilarious it's it's uh yeah it's like such a classic uh recording now too and it's so i find it so cool that she's this person that you know be it that germs record or your record like there's always you know, it's cool that it goes back to the beginning, you know, like the runaways are one of the first, right. And here they are, here's Joan still kind of. Yeah. And she's independent too, right. She had to put out her own record. That's the other crazy thing. If you, if you know anything about Joan, you know, that that first record has however many hits it's like all hits or something. 
she sent that around and like no one would put it out no no label would put it out so then they put it out themselves so it's like i think she you know she identifies with independent labels and independent music because she is one herself you know uh kathy this has been unbelievable and anytime you want to come back on here and talk about the flattening of punk or the different <laughs> genres of punk i'm happy to talk to you about any of it all right all cool all right that sounds great maybe maybe i should come back on with toby or kathleen or toby and kathleen or something like that and then we can we can compare notes and correct each other but that's <laughs> not what happened yeah. <laughs> thank you kathy for coming on the show and you heard right there kathy will be back for part two at some point in the future to talk about more, to dive into more of this uh, punk stuff and the differences and, and the not-so-differences between all these different genres. That was a lot of fun. Uh, once again, don't know what's going on with Bikini Kill at this point. Uh, hopefully they'll be playing some more shows because it was fantastic to finally get to see them. Uh, Casual Dots will hopefully be playing some shows. Maybe the Frumpies, maybe the Julie Ruin. Who knows what Kathy Wilcox will do? She has a lot of, uh, a lot of incredible bands. To, to Maybe she'll do something new. Who knows? Follow her on Instagram and keep up to date on what's happening. Speaking about what's happening, next episode of Turned Out a Punk, we finally cross a threshold I've wanted to cross for a very long time on this podcast. We've had guests from a lot of places in this world, but for the most part, it's, it's been pretty limited. Let's be honest. It's There's, you know, really like four or five countries we pulled from. So we've never had a guest from Indonesia on this podcast, which is a shame because it is probably the biggest hardcore scene in the world. And what a way to kick off having guests from Indonesia on this podcast. We have the lead singer of one of the biggest punk hardcore metal bands going in the country, Seringe, and the lead singer, Aryan 13, will be on the show. And that's not all. He also was the lead singer of the legendary band Poopin, who were featured on a Bangdang punk hardcore comp of underground Indonesian music put out by Tiananmen 89, a compilation which is one of my favorites and a near and dear record to my heart. And, and oh my gosh, I'm very excited to hear this. This is why we do this podcast. And it uh, really drives home, you know, what, what makes punk and hardcore so special? And you'll hear all this go to on the next episode. I'm, I'm very excited. You can hear it in my voice. All right, that is it for me. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues faced by indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights. Stop hate and violence towards people of different races and different faiths. Because we're, we're not talking about political issues here. These are just basic human rights issues. People have the right to deserve to be free and, and people have the right and deserve to be free from hatred and oppression and violence. I would also add to this, we'd, we need to help make sure people keep their hands out of other people's reproductive choices and telling other people what they can do and can't do with their reproductive systems because that's a human rights issue too. So if there's organizations that are affecting positive change in your community, in your world, in, in anywhere, get involved. You know, help be that change. You donate your time. You can donate money. You can donate your voice. There's lots of stuff you can do to get involved. And it'll help you feel better. Speaking of feeling better, try meditation. You know, who knows? Who knows? It might do something positive for you. I didn't believe in it. And and I know I'm a fool for not believing in it because people have been doing this practice and these practices for years. 
And I'll tell you, you listen to that episode last week with Michael Imperioli, and he talks about meditation on that. You know, you can listen to that Bill Hader episode way back when. He meditates on that. So if all these people who are successful in their respective creative fields are finding benefit from meditation, maybe try it, you know? Maybe try it. There's lots of free apps to try it. I'm not telling you to try a specific practice or system because I am not that advanced. I have no idea. Just try an app. Try a YouTube video. See, see how it goes. Speaking of seeing how it goes, contribute to this punk scene. See how it goes when you put something out in this world. Start a band, start a fanzine, even start one of these silly podcasts. You can do whatever you want to do, but create your own culture. This gets better when you participate in creating it. Uh, and sign your organ donor cards, because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need that shit. And I've seen it perform miracles. With my own eyes, I've seen organ donation change, well, give people new leases on life, so... Well, that is it for me. I don't think there's anything more for me to ramble on about now. Uh, I will see you on the next episode. I'm excited for it. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.